Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Volume 2, Chapter 8, Episode 31. In the last episode, I covered the Song of Deborah, the Kishon River, and the place of Ophrah. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm kicking off with the Hill of Morah, mentioned in Judges Chapter 7. I'll wrap up the episode with the 6th Anniversary Update. And with that, let's get started. Judges 7 leads off with the judge Gideon, routing the Midianites, who were encamped below the hill of Morah. I previously covered the Oak of Morah in Chapter 6, Episode 33, released in October 2020, which, of course, didn't directly address the hill of Morah. This place is a hill in northern Israel, in the northeast portion of the Jezreel Valley. The highest part of the hill is nearly 1,700 feet, just over 500 meters above sea level, which places it nearly the same distance from the floor of the valley below. North of the hill are the plains of Lower Galilee and Mount Tabor. To the southeast, it descends into the Herod Valley, which is where the spring of Herod flows to the Jordan Valley, then river. The name Mora is likely related to the Hebrew word for teacher, which when combined with the oak bearing the same name, likely means a teacher lived at or near the place in ancient Israel. Probably nothing more exciting than that. Beginning in the Middle Ages, Christian pilgrims would sometimes call it Little Hermon in connection to Psalms 89.13, which reads, To the north and south, you created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. This thought about Mora instead of Hermon is likely since the hill was far closer to Mount Tabor than the real Hermon was. A place named Mora is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible three times, in Genesis, Deuteronomy, and this one in Judges 7 is the last mention. But this is the only one about the hill. The other two concern the oak, though a few translations interpret the mentions of the oak on Mora as really referring to less specific trees on the hill, this hill, and there really isn't much else to it. Moving along to the annual anniversary update for the podcast. So, this is the 311th episode, which means the podcast, since it's weekly, and has published every week, is hitting its sixth anniversary. Like I've mentioned so many times before, I won't say that I never expected to get this far, or that I did. Quite frankly, when I started, I didn't know what to expect. It's just as true today as it was six years ago. I'll tell you one thing, though. I never expected that six years in, I would only be in the Book of Judges, Though this time last year, I was beginning the book of Joshua, and all of that after spending several years in the Pentateuch. While superficially that may seem like acceleration, it's owing more to two congruent factors. First, as the biblical text progresses, many of the people, places, and things have previously been mentioned, and therefore I've already covered them. Except, of course, for all these new places in Canaan. At least, most of the rest of the Old Testament, and new for that matter, 
is in the same region, though many of the players will change. The second factor is that the history embedded in the text is slowing. As an example, think about the book of Genesis. That first book covers the history of the world, then region, then the Israelites from the creation until their arrival in Egypt. Literally thousands of years. Exodus covers the 400 or so years the Israelites were in Egypt, and many of the years of wandering, so four to five centuries. Meanwhile, the book of Leviticus is thought to cover a period between one and two months. Numbers in Deuteronomy provide a really condensed history of the 40 years wandering. Joshua is just the lifespan of its namesake, at least that part after the Israelites crossed the Jordan. And Judges covers the estimated 410 years of the Judges period. Taking all of this into consideration, and as the time pace of the books slows, the pace of the podcast increases inversely. Overall, and also like I've mentioned before, I intend for the podcast to be as thorough as necessary. My overriding goal is that my listeners can walk away learning not only something they didn't previously know, but can also apply it to their lives, both inside and outside of the religion. And that takes time. I'm still hopeful that you found the delivery and content has gotten better as it progresses. I'm certainly more comfortable in all aspects, from the research to the writing to the recording, editing, re-editing, and finally publishing. And, in case you've missed it the other times I've mentioned it, This is not my full-time job. Instead, I manage to work the podcast in and around work and family obligations. The way my week typically goes, well, really, optimally, is reading and writing some on Monday and Tuesday, ramping up Wednesday and Thursday, then the first draft is complete sometime Saturday. Rereading and re-editing Saturday and Sunday, along with checking the pronunciation of the ancient names and places. And I'm going to pause here for a second. Very early on, I received some negative feedback regarding pronunciations. And the place that sticks out in my memory is Nineveh. And I'll admit, I did initially mispronounce it, which led to an additional step in the production process the creation of a pronunciation guide. This is the least liked part and can take up to an hour, but thanks to the wonders of the internet, pronunciations of most of these arcane places and people are readily available. Though, do note there are, in many cases, several acceptable pronunciations. My warning is that if I pronounce something differently than how you've heard it, It truly may be that I did mispronounce it, but it's more likely that there's an alternate. Recently, someone wrote in and took me to task over my pronunciation of bitumen, which is essentially a fancified word for asphalt, the word we would use in a modern conversation. But bitumen is found in three separate instances in Genesis and Exodus. And, as you've noticed, I pronounce it one way but it can also be pronounced bitumen, the British pronunciation. Neither is wrong, just different. Overall, I used to aim for about 3,500 words, no more than 4,000. 
not including the intro and outro, but recently. I just write until I run out of time, and the episodes have gotten a bit shorter. Sometimes it's either do that or burn out. I'll choose the former. I hit the million word mark sometime over the last year, and with that, my internal need for word count completely evaporated. I haven't measured it since, but a quick comparison. For perspective, the King James Authorized Bible has 783,137 words. The NIV has almost 728,000 words. And I'm going to pause here, too. One of the things I really enjoyed doing in the podcast is attempting to put perspective on ancient, misunderstood, or generally nebulous concepts. More on that in a minute. Unpausing. To think that, over the course of six years, I've written more words than can be found in the text of the Bible is utterly amazing. Please don't misunderstand. I am by no means comparing the depth or quality of my writing to the Bible, just the volume. I used to print the script, then record, then recycle the paper. Now, I don't even print it. A bit over a year ago, I upgraded my laptop and can read from one screen while recording on another. The point being that I've never accumulated all of the text of the episodes. But to know if they were printed, it would be larger than the size of the Bible is staggering. Back to the production process. If everything goes well, I'll record on Sunday afternoon. The first audio edit is Sunday, the second Monday and the third and final edit is Tuesday. That's right, three separate audio edits. That's the most tedious and really the least rewarding part of the whole process, except for the dreaded but necessary pronunciation guide. Imagine having to listen to yourself over and over again. Next, I'll write up the one-paragraph summary and the keywords and submit for publication Wednesday evening. As astute as all of my highly intelligent listeners are, I'm sure you notice that my weeks overlap. And they do. I'm pulling double duty writing and audio editing Monday through Wednesday. The necessity of good audio editing is something that surprised me. In order to get the sound consistent and of sufficient quality, there's about two to three hours of editing that needs to occur for a 25-minute episode. Overall, the process is an intense, non-stop, seven-day-a-week task, a task that requires discipline and planning. My actual job used to require a lot of travel, at least pre-pandemic. In 2019, I spent around 130 nights away from home, and I don't like to travel with my bulky microphone, if I can avoid it. So there are cases, many in fact where I will work like crazy to get two or three episodes ahead. At least in the writing and recording, I can always audio edit and publish from anywhere, as long as I have an internet connection. But that carries a risk. If I totally mess up something in recording, and don't catch it in real time, I can be stuck away from my microphone with the publication deadline looming. That's the nightmare. Having said that, it's never happened in a manner that wasn't recoverable, or at least a missed edit that wasn't terribly bad. 
I've never missed a weekly publication, owing more to my discipline and luck than anything else. Like I mentioned, I used to travel about 50% of the time for work, and airplanes make for good writing, as long as it's not terribly bumpy and the laptop is fully charged. I've recorded at my house, in hotel rooms, in the back seat of my SUV, and while I was visiting relatives, I've researched and written in more places than I can remember, and spent time in cars, on planes, the subway, and who knows where else editing the audio. In six years, I've made three trips to Europe, one to Canada, another to Central America, and a countless number of states, cities, and airports, and always published. All with the usual family distractions, work distractions, personal distractions, a completely unexpected distraction of a worldwide epidemic, and finally, a seeming recovery. And with all of that, rest assured, next week, and every week in the foreseeable future, I will publish. And about putting things in context. This is one of my favorite things. Think of the role the Sea of Galilee has played in the biblical text. Thousands of years from before the Israelites crossed the Jordan to the walking on water, its role is larger than life. But how large is it? It's a sea after all. Well, there are two ways to measure the size of a body of water, its surface area and its water volume. The sea has a surface area of 64 square miles, which is about 166 square kilometers and its volume is almost a cubic mile, or four cubic kilometers. And those numbers alone, unless by rare chance you are a hydrologist, are really good at visualizing geometry. Well, they're meaningless. So, I add context. If the sea were located in the U.S. in terms of surface area, it would be the 80th largest lake. Smaller than all of the Great Lakes, of course, but also smaller than lesser-known lakes such as Lake Murray in South Carolina, or Clear Lake in California. In other words, not all that remarkable. The Sea of Galilee fares better when compared in terms of volume, as it would be the 46th largest lake, which points towards something else. It's deeper than the average large lake in the U.S., and putting it in this context isn't merely trivial. My hope is that it makes the sea, well, really lake, more comprehensible, more real. I've tried to contextualize other things, the size of the Tower of Babel, Noah's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the value of gold and silver, distances between points, attempting and hopefully succeeding in making the text more understandable and meaningful. And now for a few interesting tidbits. As of this week, the first volume has been heard in 197 countries. The second volume has some catching up to do, as it's currently up to 34. But then again, it's very new. Also, it seems not every listener has found volume 2. I'm sure they eventually will. And that's where you can help. I end each episode with a request that you rate the podcast on iTunes. And you should really do this, especially if you can give it four or five stars. I'm not kidding when I say the reviews help others define the series. It really does. 
the quantity, ratings, and frequency of the ratings game the Apple algorithm and cause it to rise in search results. And the higher it is in search results, the more people who find it. It's self-fulfilling. I do get several frequently asked questions. I sometimes reply, if I get a chance to reply, to tune into the anniversary episode. So I guess I need to address those now. First, I've been approached by advertisers, and so far, I've turned them all down. I really like not having to worry about how they would feel about the content. One day, there may be a good fit, but so far, none. And I've been blessed enough professionally that the expense of the podcast is not a burden. I also think monetizing it would deflate much of the satisfaction I get from doing it. I don't want to think of it as a job. I'm often asked about my theological leanings. I think I may have addressed this a couple times, but in case I haven't, the quick summary is that I am Protestant, having been raised in a household that essentially alternated between Presbyterian and Baptist. But I try to keep all theological implications out of the episodes and focused just on the history. Having said that, we all have blind spots and I'd be surprised if my beliefs didn't inform the episodes somewhat. I've been asked once or twice to footnote everything and provide my references. I'm passing on that suggestion. I've written many academic articles where citing is an absolute must, and it slows the process tremendously, and it makes it extremely boring. This isn't an academic forum, and I need to make it less dense instead of more. Also, when's the last time you heard something on the radio or watched an educational program that cited all of their sources, or even any of their sources? They don't, because it's a different format. Like I've mentioned in the past few anniversary episodes, I've been approached about turning the podcast into a book, and the update is it's been a couple of different publishers. I consider that a great compliment. My short answer continues to be, not yet. For now, the same reasons as to why I've shunned advertisers and I'm not footnoting apply. Maybe at some point in the future. Though now, with as many words as I've written, the task would either require multiple volumes or intense editing. I've had a couple of friends and acquaintances who have left their professions to pursue their passions. And they're generally very successful. But then, something changes, and their passions become just another profession. And the joy departs. So for now, I'm having too much fun, and I don't want to change the secret sauce. Not to forget, I'd most likely drive an editor and publisher a bit crazy. I do get letters, really criticism, about why I use this term or that. Why, for example, especially early on in the podcast, I referred to the land inhabited by Abraham by many terms, just not Israel. I don't know if I ever made it obvious, but I really tried to avoid using the word Israel prior to the birth of Jacob, who would later be renamed Israel. The reasons should be obvious, but just in case it isn't, you shouldn't call it Israel prior to the birth of Israel. I sometimes use the word Levant in a very few but some took issue with that. And the issue they took tended to center around the modern political 
well, really terroristic use of the word. For the record, the Levant is a geographic region that is much bigger than the modern country of Israel, and therefore much larger than ancient Israel. Depending on who you ask, as is generally true with very broad terms, it includes all or part of several modern countries including Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey. Some even think it includes parts of Egypt, Libya, Greece, and Iraq. My use is generally confined to the countries I just listed that are also on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, a word used in a geographic sense only. I'm trying to be accurate, but not terribly pedantic. And finally, the last question I'm frequently asked, who am I? I have yet to disclose the answer. A few people that are extremely close to me know, and that's it. This podcast isn't about me, and it's certainly not about my ego, but do know that I am degreed in history from a nationally ranked university on the topic, and I have a doctorate degree. Like I've mentioned before, I've been published academically, and my career has proven very rewarding. And that's enough from and about me. I hope you'll keep listening, and I'll provide an update in another year or so. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others define the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.